You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm Simon. Hello, I'm Lee. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm JR. What are we going to do first, Doctor Who or Star Wars? <coughs> I'll get Star Wars, out, get the way. Star Wars out of the way, shall we? Yeah, Star Wars warm us up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, we said last time that you were going to see Star Wars the very next day, Last Jedi. So yeah. we would talk about it again at the start of this one. Mm. But also, sort of coincidentally, in the time since we recorded the last one, I've also rewatched The Force Awakens, which also is another sort of talking point, I guess, since I hadn't seen that since it came out. Anyway, <clears throat> tell us about your second experience of The Last Jedi. Um, I the thing I got from it is how desensitised I was from my experience of watching it the first time. I do feel like it, it worked against accepting a lot of the changes uh, because we watched Force Awakens straight away just before The Last Jedi. Yeah, but this is what I found with Force Awakens. I didn't find any difference between the two, not really. Yeah, but I did. I did. I think, I think there's a difference in tone, quite a, quite a strong difference in tone. I didn't, content. I didn't think there was. Content, yes, but no, I do think there's a difference in tone. I really do. See, the first time Cameron Poe opens his mouth mm. in The Force Awakens, he makes almost exactly the same joke as he does at the start of The Last Jedi. Absolutely, yeah, and that's certainly within character. Um, but it's the response, isn't it, of the other character that felt jarring? The, the chap with the ginger eyebrows. <laughs> can never remember his name. Donald yeah. Gleeson. It's the yeah. way that he answers, which is very kind of 20th century glib humour which didn't seem that that wasn't really there in the other film mm. I don't think mm. as much there was there was there is a, there's a definite much. difference in the humour between the two films yeah we've been there already haven't we <laughs> yeah no, no I take I take what you're saying to a point Joe which is that, that the humour does stay within characters like you say about Poe and, and Finn and people like that um, but I think there was a there was a real quite heavy smattering of I, I don't know I think parody almost yeah maybe maybe and it almost felt like humour, which you would see in the things like the the, the Family Guy uh, parodies and things like that, but kind of toned down and brought into Star Wars. Um, and, th- and I think that's where the difference is. I think just there's a there, there's a heavier smattering. There just seemed to be a lot more humour, or maybe more in your face humour. Whereas if you when we when I went back and watched Force Awakens, it was more character driven and almost. Um, behavioural, you know, the like the exchange between Ray when she's trying to do the fixing, she's looking for the tool. She said, "No, not that one, not that one, not that." One. It's that kind of humour, which but is the very only natural humour. Yeah, yep, yeah. the only piece of humour that's in <clears throat> Last Jedi that isn't like that is that one instance of the shot with the iron. Everything else is character driven and in character. Things like the bit where. Um, Luke says to Ray, "Is that right? Am I getting the names right? I can't. Mm. Terrible for this. Reach out, and she reaches out. Yeah, but even that is, I mean that that is that's a lovely moment. That's yeah, you're right. That is a natural moment. But there's things like uh, the milking bit, <laughs> which is just 
is odd doesn't seem as half as bad second time around. That's all I say about it being desensitised. Was... Yeah, but no, I, but think... I thought that was there for a point. And I thought the point with that milking bit is Ray gets to this island and thinks she's going to walk up to this guy and he's going to fall in line behind her. Mm. And that bit where he drinks the milk is him saying, I've been on this island for 10 years. This is what I've been forced to do. If you but think it's... I'm going to just walk off this island with you, then... Have a think about oh, this. Yeah, but if it's making a point and not about humor, then why does but, he wink but, at no, it? No, because I think it's because that's what he's doing. I think it's making a different point that we see Luke on this island and he appears really dour. Mm. And if he was dour for the full length of the film, mm. then he would be a very boring character. And mm. what that moment's mm. saying is the, the the young Luke, the kind of cheeky Luke, is still inside somewhere, and he's kind of playing dour. Yeah, I don't think he even is. So it's all about sort of concealed characters throughout the film. So Finn is concealing bravery Mm, mm. and Poe is concealing things. So it's all about the the sort of the the relationships that they're hiding on the outside. And on the surface, they're kind of traditional Star Wars dour characters Mm, or serious mm. characters or heroic characters. But underneath, they're cowards or they're, they're sort of confused or they're cheeky. And I think that's what it's doing. It's getting underneath the skin of the traditional... Like, Obi-Wan Kenobi is a really... like It's a great actor playing Obi-Wan Kenobi, but he's not the most interesting character in the original Star Wars film. No, no. Because he doesn't have any of those moments where no. you see something underneath. He's just one exactly. character. And this is giving the characters a little bit of depth. I thought it was an evolution. I thought it was a different tone from the original, from The Force Awakens. But I think it was more of an evolution of things that were in The Force Awakens, an evolution of of that kind of humour that develops the characters, part of the characters' developments. Well, okay, put it another way, is I feel the way it was... I don't know. Directed film? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. It is a completed taste thing. It's not really a criticism. It's more that it's... I mean, it's definitely a directorial voice behind it, where you can tell, you can tell. yeah. And, and that's why was, I say I don't have a problem with it because you know he's the director; it's but, his choice. But there that's wasn't the Force it, Awakens. There wasn't the Force Awakens. You can tell the Force Awakens is a J.J. Abrams movie, mm. almost from that first shot of the stormtroopers mm. handheld with lens flare in the yeah. in the carrier. That's like nothing else in the original Star Wars films. But because it's quite cool, mm. you kind of accept it. And the same thing with the second film. There's a directorial voice throughout. It's just a slightly more ironic. Yeah, I will. Voice. I will say that that. You know, I was watching it the first time, and I think um, it didn't help watching it after midnight. It didn't help after watching the previous film. It didn't help how after having twenty five minutes worth of commercials between the two films. You know, mm. and you're looking at your watch when the whole, as far as you're aware, it's supposed to start just after midnight. Mm. So that didn't help. It didn't help that I was sat next to a bloke who was sniffing loudly all the way through. Lee. So yeah, Lee, come on. Actually, I was sat next to Andy, but anyway, you have to keep himself um, awake, I suppose. The other side of us. Okay. Um, so those things don't help, which is why I wanted to see it again. I could tell there was something going on, but it felt so uh, disjointed, and I felt so, some some of it so distracted that you know the humour and some of the ways it was filmed. You know, like I said about that, some of those scenes where it was filmed almost direct onto the to the windows when they're going through hyperspace you see the hyperspace going sideways almost like on a train mm. like you say that had never been done in the Star Wars film so that felt somewhat distracting because they thought oh this is different to the point where was it, there none of that it, it in didn't... Force Awakens? no not 
I no, think I'm sure of it. Not, I not, know. Not, not, not the um, the way that the camera. I mean, was that set felt up. like a studio set. That felt. They like... changed the special effect for light speed mm. between the two films. Mm. Mm. That's true. That was a difference. It was, I mean, I, I can't say that it wasn't interesting watching it the first time. It was really interesting, but I came out and the first thing I said, wasn't it? And I came out and said, well, that was a bloody mess. Yeah. Because I couldn't make sense of it. It didn't kind of... But did you make more sense of it? Absolutely. Second time round, it just flowed. You said, well, you said... So I can only imagine that it's some kind of desensitising thing going on where, you know, the stuff that was new and different just wasn't affecting me. And I will say the humour, which I don't didn't get on with so well... I didn't even react to the jokes. You did say, I think, by the time we got to Luke, and I think it was the milky, milky bit, you yeah. turned around and looked at me and went, I'm so disorientated. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. It was <laughs> Because odd. it was really weird, wasn't it? The whole thing yeah. just felt a bit... See that? A bit, bit not Star Wars, I With the milk. Haven't there been just millions of things like that in Star Wars, going right back to like the first cantina, where no. you've got all these weird aliens? Not going up to not a, maybe you, as obvious as no, that. You get it, but threaded through Star Wars, you have always Jabba the Hutt mm. in the start of Return of the Jedi. All the weird shit he's eating on that what a, desert yeah. thing. But yeah. I think it's the, the slightly they weird don't go up to sexual context. There's a naked alien with four boobies, and he's, well, he's giving it, it a little. It's basically a cow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. Did you I find it sexual? Well, cows don't have boobies like that. Tell us more. Tell, yes, us, tell us more about. They have teats. They have four boobies. Tell like us more that. about what you felt about it. Hang on. <laughs> Another has about five. There was teats. Whoa! What's that table, Lee? Did you grow? Did you grow up in the countryside? I'm actually moving in to make a point. I don't know why. Why is the mic sliding towards me? Was I'm sure this this creature had one. Tell us more about these others didn't, didn't, didn't they have one little nipple each Lee you're dribbling it... hey <laughs> that was a, it? you're foaming Lee I'm not at the mouth that takes us back to a line in Return of the Jedi wouldn't they he was our last hope no there is another hey. oh. oh god um, <laughs> but that, there was actually in uh, The Force Awakens and I'm sure I'm not mistaken here Han Solo repeats a line of dialogue from like Empire or Return of the Jedi oh, absolutely word yes. for word but without any sense of in-fiction irony that he knows that that's no, what he's doing. No, And that is a tradition, isn't it? You know, somebody always says, I've got a bad feeling about this. And there's oh, yeah, no, no, like it's that. more than that, I think. No, maybe it was that. Mm. But if you are going to repeat a line of dialogue that you famously said, you should be winking at the person you're saying it to. I know I've said this before, but he doesn't, which makes it is really weird. Is that you think it's breaking the fourth wall, then? That's breaking the fourth wall because that's a nod to the audience, but it's not inside the fiction and nod to the other characters. Okay. If the character himself isn't aware that what he's doing is repeating something he's said before, mm. he should know he said that before. So if he doesn't know he said that before, that is purely for the audience and that does break the fourth wall. And I was fine with it. Mm. But I'm just saying, if that's happening in The Force Awakens then you have to allow for similar things mm. elsewhere. Mm. And I think that stuff's been going on ever since maybe about Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi. See, for me, it felt more kind of Roger Moore, James Bond. Yeah, but that's like breaking the fourth Roger wall. Moore. Right. Roger Moore, right from Live and Let Die, would win to the audience, quit for the audience, and that's breaking the fourth wall. But he gets away with it because they're romps. And you don't mind, it doesn't take you out of the fiction. Mm. Mm. The bit with uh, Han Solo in Force Awakens almost took me out of it. 
But then I didn't mind because I'm thinking it's just a film anyway and it's Mm -hmm. Star Wars. It is supposed to be a bit fun. I suppose, you know, I'll be talking straight up is that much like Mark Hamill said, he's been living with Luke Skywalker all all these years. You sort of grow up, you know, I was, we were the right age, weren't we, Lee? We were Mm -hmm. six or seven when it came out. Yeah, which is the age and you you live with these characters and you live with the story so the story's been there sitting in your head and so... but you know what the problem is don't you you've been living with Luke Skywalker age 17 absolutely. to 22 for yeah, 40 absolutely. years absolutely and that's why it's an interest, this is an interesting thing to talk about and, and I why wonder... I use the word desensitising because you you have got to break three, three of these things and, and uh, as we were talking about before the podcast Mark Hamill has been quoted as he was initially critical of you know the direction they were taking Luke Skywalker's character because he was saying, "Oh, Jedi would never do that." And then, but then he turned around and said, "But it's in service of the story." Yeah, absolutely. But then the way I look at it is, if he's been on an island for I don't know how long it is. Do they say in the film how long it is no, he's been it's on the island? About 40, 30 years. Twenty. No, years. because he did the training Five school, years. so it's probably <laughs> it's probably something in the region of maybe ten years, right? Okay. But I but I think. Living on your own on an island with a bunch of fish monks and having to drink milk from these sea cow things is what's going to give you a yeah. sense of humour. Yeah. So I was what, talking to Lee what, when we came here because I'm younger. I'm slightly younger, so I didn't grow up with watching the films in the cinema, or mm. I couldn't remember the films. So I played with the toys first, mm. and then the films came after. And I wondered if that was maybe why I was more comfortable with an eclectic film because basically my experience of Star Wars growing up was just creating any sort of adventure with Lego and Mm, the whole thing and then getting into the film yeah absolutely yeah I mean I was near nigh on obsessed what I was going to say about again (laughs) we were (laughs) (laughs) well I'm not I'm not you are you are (laughs) I think now because I've never really been into the extended universe or anything like that yeah but I think and I don't want to sound patronising, but I think your reactions are your first viewing of The Last Jedi. Mm. So shows how involved you are. Yeah. Because you weren't able to step back and look at the film objectively. Absolutely. You were looking at it with yeah. your fan head on. But to give myself credit, I did think I need to see that film. Yeah, again yeah, yeah. Because Which is what a lot of something else was going on. Mm. I definitely and, need to see and, it. And I, uh, I would give it an 8 out of 10 now. Um it may become a nine. It may just get better and better as I watch it. I think it will. I thought it Because was I did see a lot of well subtleties. Done. I mean, just very quickly, going back to the milking scene again, what, what got us is there is actually, because what I found interesting, fascinating really, was that I was watching sequences where I thought, oh, that didn't work very well. That comic timing wasn't very good and all that sort of thing. And it felt like I was watching a different take because it didn't seem anywhere near as... As polished. No, 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 it's no, even no. More... anywhere's near as lacking in polish. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, it didn't okay. feel as jarring. But the milking scene, what I did notice is there is a frame where they literally focus on the others. That's yeah. right. It's and the opening scene, isn't it? Yeah, and they... Before you see him go to the... Yeah. That's what I mean. It's like straight so away... It, is shock... not... it, it comes across as shock tactics, doesn't it? It was. Like, it's like, you know, da-da-da-da-da, walking around, spearing a fish from 20,000 feet up, and suddenly... Tits! It's like, <laughs> what? Yeah, but essentially... <laughs> In the Star Wars <laughs> vernacular, like yeah. that's like in the cantina scene, you get a bunch of shots of all the various different aliens mm. in the canteen mm. before you get Han Solo walking in, mm. right? Or before you get to the shot of Greedo. And that's how Star Wars works. You don't, it's, 
Some movies you get a long shot to set it up and the characters walk into the room and then you go into a mixture of close-ups and mediums. Star Wars has always worked because of the amount of aliens you've got. Everything from when you first get to... Um, what's the city on Tatooine that they go to with Ben? Moss Eisley. Moss Eisley. When yeah. you first go to Moss Eisley, you get like 15 shots of B-roll of aliens walking around before they get into yeah, they Moss don't Eisley. Focus on their... You're doing the special edition. They don't focus on well, the Well, yeah, you do really do in the special edition. <laughs> no, you don't see in the but background is... a stormtrooper giving But a, I'll tell you what I did notice. But this is... But just to finish my point, yeah. this is the grammar of Star Wars yeah. editing. Yeah. So when you come to the... To the sea cow, whatever you're going to call it, <laughs> it's like bang. Here's the others, and that's the same reaction as you get when you first go into the cantina. What the f is that in front of me? Oh, thank goodness, here's Luke and Ben to make sense of all these <laughs> weird <Milton>. images. <laughs> but that's the grammar of how the film works. It shows you a yeah. bunch of weird stuff, and then it brings the characters you know in, so that the scene starts oh, to make sense. Mm, We've mm. not seen a brothel yet. I think that's so, going to be a weird thing. I don't know That'd if I imagine this. Though. We have Jabba I, the Hutt's palace. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I imagine this though, but there's a shot in the casino where the camera goes right the way through the the casino, and I'm fairly sure there's a there's a woman singing, sort of going oh, with her arms up in the air mm-hmm. as the camera goes over her head. I can't remember what's happening exactly. I think it's when the things are piling through those animals. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but she's got she's um, got three sets of cleavage. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's kind of mirroring the milking no, 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 scene. That's got the royal seal of approval. That's another <laughs> head to total recall. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. All Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, that's right. Oh, or, oh, is that just her eyes? No, just her eyes, mate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the memory cheats. Is that Battlestar Galactica in 1978? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I can't even remember. We need to review that film. Oh, you mean the... I love that scene. Well, the film Battlestar Galactica 1978 is just two episodes of the TV series stitched together, isn't it? Oh, is it? Hmm. I think so, yeah. Um, I believe it was a film. That was the film, but there was a second one, wasn't there? Um, Mission... It was Mission Earth. Oh, yeah, that was the third one, wasn't it? I'm sure of it. Yeah, that was the third one with a different cast, wasn't it? There was another film, you're right, which was two two episodes stitched together. I thought they all were. Oh, okay. I, I might be mistaken. I'm not a... Battlestar Galactica, nineteen seventy-eight aficionado, but I just I always thought the films. Were just... the, there was a film where it was the first episode and then an episode they go into a space casino. That's it, and they were stitched together into one film. Oh, uh, that's, yeah, yeah, that's what, what I remember. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, those are where the ladies are singing with their extra arms and eyes, and they the honeycombs and yes, strange yeah. beasts putting them in honeycombs. Hmm. Um, I mentioned this just before we started recording, but I'll bring it up again because it's worth it. When I was watching The Force Awakens, one of the big complaints about Last Jedi that I read in lots of places was, oh, oh God, I can't remember his name again, Finn, the bit where he's about to run away. Mm. And last week when we talked about it, we said part of the reason he's doing it is to save Rey. But also part of the reason he's doing it is just because he thinks they're all doomed and he wants to get out of there. And people were saying... That's out of character for him. Mm. Watching The Force Awakens, he does it at least two, if not three times yeah. in that movie. Mm. You know, when he first meets Poe Dameron, I nearly said Cameron Poe then, <laughs> on the on the Imperial you did, you whatever did, it is. You did earlier. Did I? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> oh, you're a pilot. I'll get you out of it, just as long as you can fly the spaceship. I don't really care who you are, but if you're a pilot, that'll do. And then later on, when they're in the, I don't know, Jamaica Inn or whatever it is, where they go in the middle to meet that little orange thing. 
He does it again. He tries to run away again. He's forever running away. And this is the point I made, is that in a film series or some kind of franchise, a Flash Gordon thing, whatever, where they're more interested in plot than character, in the first segment, you'll have the character who looks like you know that by the end he's going to be the hero, but he doesn't look like he's going to be. And so the tension is, when will he have this moment of heroin? Heroism? Heroin? <laughs> and stop being the coward or stop being the would-be or stop being the yeah. never-quite and become the hero. And then from that point forwards, he is the hero and just remains the hero. No more character development. To me, it feels more real that if Finn is forever running away in The Force Awakens before he finally gets a bit at the end where he gets to be a hero, it makes more sense to me that he doesn't just then stay a hero, mm. but then afterwards you've got this dichotomy in his character between wanting to run away and wanting to do the right thing. But he becomes a better better hero in the second film because mm. he's about to sacrifice his life. Well, he learns everybody. something else in the second yeah. film because it's him who goes down to the... Um, it is, is it, yeah, it's him who goes down to the planet and saves those beasts, isn't mm, it, mm. with the uh, girl. So his trajectory is, in the first film, he learns about doing the right thing in terms of politics. And in the second film, he learns about doing the right thing in terms of ecology, for want of a better well, way. Emotion, emotional reasons, yeah. Yeah, so, so that by the third the film, right he'll get a scene in the third film where you put all this together... And he's the one who really, really comes good at the end of the third film, I should imagine. Mm. See, that scene with the escape pod, I got something different from it. I took it that it was ironic that <clears> this time he wasn't actually running away, mm. but he was getting... Well, I think there's a bit of both. Mm. But I think he's definitely running away as well. But I think he's running away because he's got an excuse. So he's think he's told himself it's all right to. Mm. Mm. But well, I think it's his old nature coming back out. And using that as an excuse to do it. I'll tell you something else that came up that's entirely unrelated. and Because <clears throat> I was talking to somebody probably on Facebook about Han Solo. And we were just saying, watching The Force Awakens, it was like, it was lovely, lovely to see Han come in. But actually, about two minutes later, you're thinking, yeah, but really, I just want to be watching Ray and Finn. Yeah. They're far more mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said... Oh, no, this was a thought I'd had since I watched the... No, not since I watched The Last Jedi, since before. That, you know, at the end of Return of the Jedi, there's that scene where you get Yoda and Ben and Luke's father after Darth Vader's been killed as ghostly presences from beyond the grave sort of saying goodbye to Luke. I just kind of assumed that at the end of the third film they'd find some way, because... Luke gets killed off in this one and Han gets killed off in the first one but the actors are still with us Mm. and if Carrie Fisher had still been with us I would have assumed that she would get killed off in the third one but you would have had a nod at the end of the end of the third film back to the end of Return of the Jedi where you know as Leia's about to go you get a tiny little cameo from Mark Hamill a tiny little cameo from Harrison Ford just to round out the third trilogy mm. and say goodbye to the old characters altogether in one scene. Mm. Of course, with Carrie Fisher having died, it's very unlikely you'll be able to get that now. I suppose if you did do it, you'd have to CGI Carrie Fisher in with the other two. 
but with her not being in the third film, you don't have an excuse to do that scene, do you? Mm. So I suppose we'll never know whether they thought of doing that, but it just seemed like an obvious thing to me to do. Mm. Can I just say, possibly my favourite new character in Last Jedi, though, is Laura Dern's character, which was really interesting to watch second time round, when you knew... Obviously, there's a twist, isn't there? That she was going to be the... Uh, yeah, we won't say what the twist is now, because no. this is not a review episode, so people may not have seen it. But yeah, she gets a big twist Yeah, that you're not expecting, yeah. and that makes sense of her character. She's great. She plays it beautifully. Great hair. And that makes sense. Yeah. Molly Sugden. Young Molly Sugden. <laughs> you're like a young Molly Sugden, Laura Dern. Yeah. But that may also make sense of why Leia's promoting a character we've never met before. Mm. That twist, mm. I think. And it makes sense of the way she treats Poe Dameron as well throughout the mm-hmm. thing. That's good. That was good. Yeah. Good bit of plotting. But there's also a really lovely twist that comes after that twist. Mm. I just thought I just thought the last Jedi really flowed really well and everything that was in there had a place in the story. Should we talk Doctor Who anyway? Yeah. Alright, this week we are um Going back to our review of the Stephen Moffat stuff that was from before we started the podcast. So we're going back and doing reviews of these stories. And we are at the start of the infamous Series 6. So we're looking back at the first two episodes. Making up one story, Impossible Astronaut and Day of the Moon. Uh, Let's go around the table and say what we thought of it first time we saw it. And how long it is since the last time we've watched it, Lee. Probably about two years since the last time I saw it, I think. And um, I rewatched it yesterday, um, and <laughs> oh, we did all rewatch it for this, right? We rewatched yes, it, right? Yeah. So I rewatched those two, and then I couldn't help myself, so I skipped on to Good Man Goes to War. Sorry, <laughs> oh, naughty. Then really. Let's Kill Hitler, Name of the Doctor, <laughs> Dare the Doctor, and Time of the Doctor. Instead of actually doing, did some... you skip Wedding of River Song? I know, I, I saw that recently. Oh, okay. So I just, you know. Um, so, yeah, I did all that when I should have been really painting the house. But anyway, never mind. <laughs> uh, so, and I, I, wow. What did you think of it first time you saw it? Get <laughs> on to what we think of yeah, it Yeah, okay. First time I saw it, I, don't know, I think we may have mentioned this before, that I thought it was great. I thought it was great. I, think we gave it a ten, I gave it a 10 out of 10 at one no, point. No, we haven't done it on this podcast. Oh, are you sure we haven't? No, that's why we're doing it now, Lee. I'm sure we gave it a 10 out of 10. No, we, in another started, we started this podcast in... Did it not come into a poll or something? No, we started this podcast in March of 2012. Yeah, yeah. but the first series we did together was the uh, the movie. You're joking. Season, yeah. Yeah, autumn but 2012, not... Dinosaurs oh, on the Spaceship and that. Okay. Oh, we've talked about every story yeah. at some well, we, point, but highly, we never reviewed yeah, with it. With high regards, I think, I've, I've spoken about this, the two, Dead Moon, possible. And um, it's amazing. It's mind-blowingly brilliant. <laughs> okay. That was what you thought of it then? Yeah, and that's what I think of it now. Oh, well done. Nicely done for spoiling the surprise. Uh, what surprise? <laughs> <laughs> Matt, how long since you've seen those two episodes, and what did you think of them the very first time you saw them? Uh, the first time I saw them... I Is it the last time you've seen them? No, no. no. Oh, okay. So I, I was going to start with the first time I saw them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was... I thought it's similar to how, I've, uh, how I view them now. They They felt strange... And knew like a restart, and I could feel at the time that there was sort of a refresh, and they felt wider and broader. They felt different the first time I saw them. Mm. Um, I last saw, I think, um, the Impossible Astronauts. I rewatched last year, but I haven't seen Day of the Moon. Day of the Moon for a 
Long time. You only watched the first half? A year ago, yeah. Yeah. Why didn't you watch the second half? Because I didn't think I was drawn to the second half. I didn't feel, well, this would come up with the yeah, I guess. The broader review. All right. Go on then, I'll move on to Simon. How long since you saw him? What did you think? <coughs> I don't think time? I've watched it properly since transmission. I think I've skipped through it or maybe watched part of it and just stuff's happened with the family so you don't get a chance to watch it all. Um, but I remember a feeling that it was it was dense. There was so much going on and it felt like it's gone up a gear and it felt like, well, what I know now is that it was Stephen Moffat in full force. He'd, he'd found his feet. He'd got his array of characters. He'd got his Doctor Who working. And this is what he's going to do with it. And I, I, if I remember anything, any one thing about it, it was incredibly affecting. Especially, you know, when the Doctor got shot, you thought, shit, mm-hmm. he's got shot. Wow. He's dead. How the hell are they going to change? Apart from changing time, how are they going to change this? So um, I, as I say, I found it incredibly affecting. Quite, I wouldn't say confusing, but it, it, there was definitely holes where I didn't feel like I picked up everything that was going on. But um, well, we'll as, get round Matt, to as that, Matt says, yeah. it was a complete different gear change. And for me, it's probably, I think the last time I watched it was probably around about the 50th anniversary sort of time. Mm. So that's probably about four years ago. And the first time I saw him was when I was just coming out of my not having enjoyed series five very much so i enjoyed these a lot more but i still had a lot of issues with these but then i rewatched them like immediately afterwards as you were doing back then you were watching the episode before next week's and all the issues i thought i had were gone within the week and so sort of on my second viewing during the first week i thought no, this is, like Matt said, Doctor Who doing something that's not what you might expect from Doctor Who, but being so damn good at it, mm. you think, well, this has a place in Doctor Who. It deserves to be here. I guess we better get stuck into it in more detail then. So, okay, this has always been one of my things. Let's get it out of the way straight away. So, Series 5 ends with not much explanation given for the blowing up of the TARDIS. And this sort of silence will fall, cliffhanger carries on. And there's also the bit where River Song's in the exploding TARDIS in the Big Bang. And then halfway through the second episode of these, there's a montage when the Doctor asks who they are. And they say, well, we're the silence. Don't you realise? There's even a bit where he walks into the spaceship at the start of the second episode or early in the second episode and says I've seen one of these before it was abandoned I wonder why that was well that was you know in 2010 yeah and it had been abandoned in 1969 as a result of this story it just seems to me obvious that that montage scene and all those little bits like that were the explanation for the end of series Mm, five mm, mm. I just that just seemed really obvious to me. <laughs> Do you know it, it, that, that stuff in plain sight? There's a line from Amy when the, after the Doctor's shot, where yeah. she literally goes, "It Co- must be a clone or a copy Co- or something like that." Is yeah. there? The answer's there. Oh yeah, there's got to be fifteen or twenty lines throughout the two episodes yeah. where they're telling you what's coming up and explaining things. Mm. 
Moffat always does it, doesn't he? Mm. But going into this episode, you had the infamous Doctor Who magazine front cover where there's a quote from Stephen Moffat, one of these four people will die. Look, we could talk about these two episodes <laughs> as if we don't know what's going to come up in the rest of the series, but let's face it, they were seven years ago. There's no point in beating around the bush. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh I'm <laughs> sorry, did I, did I use an expression you didn't like? Oh, no, seven, seven years ago. ago. <laughs> seven years ago. Oh, sorry, yeah, it's 2011, it's just, isn't it? It's 2018, yeah. Yeah, it's only three months shy of seven years. God almighty. <laughs> Stephen Moffat says one of these characters will die. And then on the day of the episode itself, I think on the BBC website, they actually showed a photograph or maybe a short clip of the Doctor being shot. So going into the episode, you knew... At least a that one of the four characters was gonna die, inverted commas, and I think I can't remember if Stephen Moffat says it, but Canton Delaware the third, the elder version, says no, that really is him, and he really is dead. Well, he's been told to say that anyway, hasn't he? So you don't have to take it on face value necessarily. But and we'll get to this more when we get to the wedding of River Song and see if it adds up. My feeling about it always, the strapline for the series is time can be rewritten. So my assumption has always been that in this first episode, the Doctor does die, and the rest of the series is about them going back to change that. Not about the Doctor not being the Doctor at the start of this first episode because he's already a, a double. So I don't think it is. I don't think it is because, and this may be a mistake... Doctor starts to regenerate. Yeah. And we know it's his last week, so he wouldn't regenerate, would We he? didn't know it was his last then, because Stephen Moffat didn't find out it was his last until after Series no, 6 yeah. of okay. Rap. No, because John but, Hurt. But that's that. how I make it sense in my head. It's obviously he was doing it for show but to knowing, make it look like... But knowing now what we do, yeah. looking at that, it's even more powerful. You know, because we kind of... You look at it and go, wow. You know, that... There's the, the you know further on through the series he does he does get quite upset about certain things about you know he's he's going to die he might die whatever and we know why but at this point we don't but if you go look back at it now and you know what's coming and even though just ignore the fact that Steve Moffat didn't know it's actually quite quite a powerful moment and you think oh my god yeah so good he really is dead and actually we did all believe you know in our heart of hearts that he was going to come back because <laughs> yeah. we believed but, yeah but the kids are watching it and yeah. my son and everything would they just it's like what? So I didn't. He's I dead. didn't find it that. Which, which made, which made the comeback sequence in the cafe all the more brilliant. It's just beautiful. The oh, whole, that, that bit where he walks out of the back of the restaurant. I thought that was funny. Comedy genius. But I didn't find it affecting to watch him be shot. I wasn't oh, sort of kicked by that. Well, not really, because he's the doctor. <laughs> and there's one thing you at the beginning of a series of Doctor Who, you know that the Don. <laughs> So I'm not, at the moment, mourning the death of Jodie Whittaker's character because I've just seen her falling out of the TARDIS. I have no doubt that she's going to survive them, <laughs> that particular <laughs> fall. Because if she doesn't, then... Yeah, then, but we didn't well, see a splat on the pavement. All, we did all the complaints on Facebook nothing. are unfounded if she dies <laughs> because they've just regenerated the Doctor into a woman and then they kill her off immediately. Yeah, but then and she's so, going to be that one out of Agent Carter. Yeah. <laughs> um, when she... Yeah. Um, so I wasn't so yeah. I think because they chose 
the doctor was one of the four to die. I didn't have any. I knew maybe if I'd been younger, that would have been. But even if I was younger, I'd know that. that but, yeah, yeah, off yeah. We've never actually well, seen the doctor shot at point blank range with a gun. Oh, it was quite well, shocking to see Sylvester McCoy to death. Sylvester McCoy. In the TV movie. Yeah, the TV well. movie. I love that. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we did. That was also quite horrible. Yeah, yeah that was much yeah. more that was much more brutal he was still because alive. he really did die. Yeah, but he was alive in hospital. Well I mean yeah. he was shot dead. Bang bang bang. That's yes. that's what happens when you get shot kids. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's the a bit, lot of shot shooting going on in the Well the bit episodes. where he's partly regenerating and all of a sudden there's one more shot and it just disappears like that mm. is yeah. quite shocking. Mm. The the way it's presented. Yeah, it's, it's, yes. yeah, yeah. But the people complained Oh, they've killed the doctor off, and then he's back straight away, and of course he's going to survive. Uh, oh my god, what did people think? It wasn't about whether the doctor survives; it was about the journey they undergo to stop it from happening. And they've effectively yeah. killed the doctor off in most cliffhangers. I mean, you don't see him die, but, but the, the cliffhanger is always the scythe over his head. Planet of evil, he falls into the bottomless void of antimatter, yeah, yeah. or deadly assassin, he's drowned, drowned underneath there. So. Yeah. You're you're constantly seeing the Doctor die. This is no different for me than... Well, that. this was something that used to happen with alarming regularity in the 70s. Mm. About five minutes from the end of the last episode of a story, the Doctor would be lying on the floor, not breathing, with no pulse. Yeah. Sarah Jane would be <clears throat> dribbling tears all over mm. his chest, and then he'd suddenly look up at her and tell her to stop being silly. Yeah. Well, weirdly, this is, a, this is a remake of Caves of Androzani, when you see the Doctor being shot... As we do, again. And then he turns out to be a robot. Oh, yeah. So, there's no... Oh, God, it's just a remake. Yeah. That's that's lost five points already. But slightly better written. Well, not better written. (laughs) More updated remake. Um, So, given that... (laughs) Well, then we should talk about the story itself. Because there are about three things in play here. There's this story... There's the end of the silence arc, right? Just three. <laughs> oh, no. Well, no. Three major plot plot strands at play. There's the end of the mystery of what was happening at the end of Series 5. There's the start of the mystery of what's going to happen through Series 6. And then there's the particular plot that's happening in this episode. Okay, let's... As we have been doing for the last few weeks, let's get one of the big bugbears out of the way first. What did anybody think of the bit where they get to the end of the episode... And they're standing in the TARDIS and they suddenly realise, oh, hang on, we've not sorted out the little girl. She's still at loose somewhere. Let's go off and have adventures. Um, I'm just trying to remember now. Mm. Uh, Was somebody aware of who the girl was at that point? No, they didn't know who she was, but they'd gone to that. They'd gone to the children's home to look for the girl because she was the one who'd been phoning the president. But what she was... It's appropriate to Doctor Who... Yeah, because the Doctor's a time traveller so if there's a mystery going on yeah. he doesn't have to yeah. he's the sort of person who could leave a crisis and come for like back. 10 years yeah. come back and at the exact it. moment he so left. this is exactly appropriate he's, yeah. he's the person you, who is calmest in the crisis because he knows he's got thousands of years potentially to, to and, and then he could come back at the same second as he's left well, yeah. and also you've got the thing going on where he always leaves at the end of stories where people are unaccounted for and in this particular instance the thing that she's afraid of is the silence and they've dealt with it hmm. so hmm. although she might still be unaccounted for 
She's no longer under any threat. So there's the issue of the fact that she's 8, 10, 12 or something, whatever it is, 8 maybe, and she's running around with nobody to look after her. But that's probably happened at the end of any number of other Doctor Who stories before, to be fair. The only difference with this one is... That they focus on her. They they then focus on her and show that without the Doctor being around, she's dying effectively mm. and then regenerates so that's a brilliant moment but that says why isn't the doctor actually doing it's, something faster yeah, to yeah, save yeah. her so they show the consequence of a doctor not getting involved but Which, i think but for a very good moment because that's a great cliffhanger for the but it is kind of in character for the doctor to not be there to stick around and sort the individual's lives out at the end it yeah. is it is an issue in this case because they do focus on yeah. the girl and because yeah. she is so young yeah but generally which is, speaking, which is oddly the reverse of what happens later in the season which i think Moffat, Moffat's admitted to which is the handling of the baby situation because the baby situation well we'll get to that when they we get then, to the middle yeah they then don't show what happens but then they do in a different way well, I don't think there's an issue with it, but we'll talk about it more later on because Amy never knows she's pregnant, so she never bonds with the child. Yes. We'll come back to that. So, yeah, okay. Well, no, she never... In, in character terms, it works, but in terms of watching it, and you know, in terms of the viewer watching it, you've got an emotional investment, even if Amy doesn't. Well, but, but we'll you've also got... an emotional investment. <clears throat> but you've also got a three-month gap three months or four months, whatever it was, May, June, July, or three months gap between episodes, which, mm. while we're Doctor Who fans and we were thinking about it for all those three months, 99% of the viewers went away and when they came back, they were like, oh yeah, there was a little girl, I'd forgotten about that, mm. whatever. Yeah, The baby, rather, the little girl. Um, All right, other things. Um, There was one thing I was going to bring up just then and I almost completely forgot, the pregnancy. Mm. I I mean, Moffat always deflects these kind of questions and never answers them. In the first episode, Amy Pond is pregnant. In the second, Amy is not pregnant. And there is specifically a scene in the second episode where the Doctor looks at her and almost says to camera, something about you's changed, hasn't it, Amy Pond? Mm -hmm. And she says, what are you talking about, Doctor? And then at the end of the mid-series break, you discover, or not even at the end, at the end of episode six, you discover she's been replaced by a ganger. Moffat's always deflected the issue of when that happens. It is 100% clear to me that she gets switched for the ganger between episode one of this and episode two of this. Mm. By the time she's done, spent three months running around in the desert, because the flickering, switched her for the, the ganger. flickering doesn't happen until the end of well, at the end of the first episode is when she reveals she's pregnant mm. and she's being sick. She's doing all the things that a pregnant woman does, I guess. She's shown to be pregnant. She doesn't say, I think I'm pregnant. She says, I'm pregnant. But it's the way the doctor reacts to her and says, you know, effectively, you've changed Amy Bond. And she says, oh, have I really? That's the thing that sells it. Mm. She's been switched out for the ganger. This is the In thing, the there, there are lots of tiny little red herrings, lots of little <laughs> tiny threads which are incredibly important, which can be missed because there are so many other things going on. 
and there are lots of tiny throwaway lines which are incredibly important that, that are kind of placed within action and music and certain other things going on. Out no, of it's not that they're placed within action and music. It's that you don't know what they refer to until six episodes, until six later, episodes later, by which time you've forgotten. Yeah, they? but they that, that's, the, that's the issue. That's the, those are the only issues I really have with these, is that it is so dense. It is really super packed with so many brilliant ideas that it's overbrimming with them, actually. And, and I'm amazed that you've got really slow scenes in there of her walking through the, the, the children's home and how a filmic it is and that, that they, they give time for things to happen, even though you've got all this stuff going on at the same time, the silence, you know, what they're saying and how they're saying it and all the Ridley stuff that's going on. There's almost too much in these two episodes. If America got hold of this, if HBO got hold of those two episodes like, say, The X-Files, they could make an entire season just out of those two episodes and build characters because there's so much in it. It's brilliant. Which but... is odd because this is exactly what happened at the time. So America did yeah. get... Mm. This is what struck me when I was watching it is how made for America it is from yeah. the pre-title previously. The, but this is almost like a pilot for that. It yeah, would, yeah, it would be exactly. like a pilot. You, you so it has, the Amy, in it. it has the Amy Pond's introduction. Yeah pre-titles yes it's got a really weird moment which is designed for an ad break yeah in the Oval Office there's a really weird sort of jump where the doctor's being threatened by guns and then he's suddenly sat down at the desk and that's that's a comedy beat that's obviously no that's an advert break I don't know and it would work better as an (laughs) advert with with an advert break because you then fill in Fill in how he gets to that. I guess it works as an ad, yeah. right? But, but it, didn't it works work. as a comedy bit. It, didn't, yeah, it yeah, didn't work for me. But, but, but yes, just, just very quickly, my point is yeah. that, oh, like sorry. you said earlier, the casual viewer, um, the casual viewer is going to be sitting there going, what, what's going on? And I think well, the casual no. viewer I had just, casual viewers around they, me they watching would... the first time and actually the last time my wife watched it with me. And she just sat there. I thought, great, she's watching Talk To <laughs> And she just sat there looking at it again. There were two things she said. One was uh, when River Song landed in the TARDIS and the big splash came out and it landed in the swimming pool, which was brilliant. She went, that's just silly. And then the second thing she <laughs> that's said... That's kind of the point. <laughs> I know, I know. The second thing she said was, really oh, I don't really get this, I'm going to sleep. Um, and I was like, oh, that's, that's disappointing. But I get what she means. Like, it is too much to take for like, a normal, everyday non-Who fan but you've on a Saturday gotta... evening. It is too much. I don't know, because you've got no, to watch is. it on two levels. You've <laughs> got lots levels. of... Yeah, but no, you've got lots of clues going on there for things that are going to happen later in the series for the people who are paying attention. For the people who are not paying attention, you've got these great big creatures that you forget when you turn the back. And by the end of the story, they've sent this message out in the moonlight and stuff and everybody's shooting these creatures. Yeah, you've got a beautiful two-parter, which is basically alien incursion by them already being there for thousands of years and then being taken out at the end by Earth humans with the Doctor's help. Lovely, brilliant story, very, very simple, brilliant imagery, great. Men in black type creatures, works perfectly in that episode. But then you've got all these other wonderful, strange clues and strands and setups ready to be paid off over the next two seasons, literally. And uh, it's too much to take in. It was too much for me as a fan. I remember doing you, I had to watch it about three times again. I, what did I miss here? Oh, I, I still don't remember that. I couldn't go scene by scene with this one at all I couldn't tell you what scene follows what scene whereas I probably could with Dare the Doctor and that's quite complicated well that isn't complicated actually but it's complicated for some people but I could go scene for scene in that film in that in that episode but I couldn't do it now even with the first two of that season I still find it 
There's too much going on. Okay, it's right, I'm going to do bit. something I don't usually do. Give me it. a score. It's ten. <laughs> right, you've just said you couldn't go scene for scene for it and you found it too complicated and you've given it ten out of I ten. I love it. Which I... shows that those things don't matter. No, they don't. But also demonstrates to you at do... least a degree that casual viewers, if they're enjoying the dialogue and the characters and the action, won't care whether there's clues going over you didn't their say head. It was too complicated. You said it was complicated. I said it's complex. It's not, yeah. yeah, it's not. It wasn't but not too complicated. Well, you said it was too complicated for a casual audience. I think you'll probably find Sherlock's the same for most people as well. Yeah, Sherlock. There's so yeah. much going on in Sherlock, and you're saying, well. You know, people who are Doctor Who fans will probably say, oh, well, Sherlock's too complicated for the casual audience of 15 million people who watches it every bloody episode. <laughs> but they're set up, they're ready. It's like the usual suspects. Before I went to see that film, everybody said, put your thinking head on, you're going to need to work out who did it. And I was like, all right. So you oh, go no. in and you're sitting there for the whole film trying to work it out. And then you're trying to, the twist is brilliant at the end if you haven't seen it. Did you think so? I did at the time. I haven't seen it since. So oh, I don't need to. It was spoiled for me before I even saw it. So, But anyway, my point is that, you know, you're ready for it. That's like a, oh yeah. Same with Sherlock. You know it's Sherlock Holmes. You know it's Arthur Conan Doyle. You know it's going to be Stephen Moffat. You know, you know it's going to be. You've got to sit there for forty-five minutes with a really strong coffee and really concentrate and watch everything that's going on on the on the screen. Doctor Who <clears throat> is tea time television viewing. It's, yeah, but that's the genius pre, of it. Is that people, it knows really it's tea time viewing, so it throws in lots of stuff for the people who are really following it, but also gives you a really simple story. Here are these tall guys in suits who need dealing with. So it gets dealt with for the people mm. who aren't following the clues. It works on both the levels. For I, those two. I thought it was actually more spoon-feeding than some of the later stories. I mm. found so they, they... So normally when they resolve a cliffhanger, when Stephen Moffat resolves a cliffhanger, he doesn't just go from the cliffhanger to the resolution. He sort of goes, as he did this time, six weeks later, or back in time somewhere. But this time he goes six weeks later, but he also provides the resolution, black and white yeah. flashbacks. Which are, which are kind yeah. of, yeah, which are kind of, Brilliant. you know, which he wouldn't do in other stories. He would like leave it and or imply it or just get you to, to work yeah. it out and fill in the blanks. But, they, but this time he does actually like. Yeah, but they weren't filling in complicated you. blanks, were they? they well, that's the point. Yeah, the blank silence going. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, this is why we're here, guys. Right, let's go with the story. Yeah. And in fact, that beginning of the second part is easier to get your head round. It's, mm. it's just and actually paced. There's mm. three or four lots of flashbacks at various points in the second episode to make sure people are keeping up with what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe there's there are some obvious things, some visual things, but there's a lot of throwaway stuff. Even Madame Kaverian, with her slightly hokey CGI moment, is like what? And it's in a, also the orphanage. That whole scene, I don't even think it needs to be in there. What what was that there for? Any of that scene? The little girl? No, no. The orphanage itself. That was what do you mean? It was really good. No, no, it was good. But why was it there? That was where the little girl was from. Yeah, but why was it there? That's, what well, I, that's where she ran back to, wasn't it? But it was wasn't also. It? But she wasn't there. Yes, she was. By the end, she was. What in the orphanage? Yeah. Yes, yeah, she turns up in the orphanage, doesn't she? Yeah, she's in the room, in the spaceship, the spacesuit. Oh, that's yeah. where she comes back it, to at the end of the story. Yeah. But isn't it? it's also there, not just okay. for plot terms, but to okay. explain what the silence, yes, you are, yeah. silence yeah. does to people. So okay. you see this guy that's lived advanced. with the silence, right? And you can see he's slowly gone mad. 
and that's okay. taking that sort of memory wipe to its its ultimate conclusion. Okay, and so also great, just great get that great scene with the silence hanging from the ceiling, like which is just <laughs> yeah. How many times since 1964 <laughs> or something have you had a scene that could easily have been excised just so that you can have an image like I don't know a Dalek rising up out of the Thames or something? And there's a nice the nice moment with where Amy sees the picture of her with a baby. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, you, and you, initially you think, oh, that's because it hasn't happened yet. No, it's not. It's because that Amy hasn't experienced that. She's seeing the real a picture of the real Amy with the baby because that's yeah. all going on at the same time as this is all going on. Okay, so what we're saying and is... To be fair, it hasn't happened yet, but when it does happen, it doesn't happen to so, the ganger Amy that we're watching no. looking at the picture. So, so hang on. So ah, see? The, the ganger Amy, I always assume <laughs> the ganger I mean? Amy was the one that was returned because when she's kidnapped in the orphanage, that's when she's taken by Kavarian. Although she's seen Kavarian before. No, she's Kavarian before that. Okay. Mm. No, she oh, she's, she's, she she's, having a, she's having a dream, something right, like that, okay. she says. She's okay. switched at some point between the first and second episode because okay. the second okay. episode is three months further on and she ain't showing nothing. Right, mm. okay. Mm. True, <laughs> true that. Yeah, so that's what I mean. There's, it, it, there's a lot in there, isn't there, to take in? But anyway. I, I have to say, it, I, I've only just, from today's viewing, worked out exactly why the kid was in a spacesuit. <laughs> I couldn't work out why that's they were using a NASA spacesuit. The, the space looks. Uh, I think I, I think it it's possibly wasn't explained as well as it could be that the, no. the science are parasites and they use they direct human evolution in the direction they want it to yeah, to so, happen. So they so, wanted to get them to to go to the moon because they simply needed some technology. They needed strong a suit. enough to hold a, a baby time lord in it. Man went to the moon right? because the silence wanted a spacesuit. Those yeah. are the actual lines used. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which seems a little. Well, bit... the question that people are. Oh, this is all doesn't make any sense. Is why did the silence need a spacesuit? Right. Well, we'll come back to that at the end of the series because this is the things. These are the things from the wedding of River Song, yeah. and I have a whole big thing about this, but I'm not going to do it now because we're on the first two episodes. <laughs> um, how? Right. Two more questions. I think I've got. How do you think it dealt with Richard Nixon? <laughs> Carefully. That's a lovely exchange between the Doctor and River, isn't there? Where they're looking up what he's known for. Yeah. And uh, she says, oh, he's done some good stuff as well. And, he, and the doctor says, not enough. And she goes, hippie. He goes, archaeologist. There's an even better line when uh, Nixon says to him, will I be remembered? And the doctor says, you won't be forgotten. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but Nixon is regarded by history as one of the great villains Although, uh, Matt, you know politics better than any of us. American, I don't yeah, think he's a villain know, so I much know as a... screen depictions of the American presidency surprisingly well. Um, Nixon's not a villain. He's no, just somebody he's a who was a bit dodgy he's and a, was caught out. But he's also a caricature. So if you look at every time Nixon's displayed on screen... In this he's, or he's elsewhere, always, In general, elsewhere, he's yeah. always parodied, even when it's Anthony Hopkins in Oliver Stone's film. Yeah. And if you look at, compare that to... You won't see that with Kennedy, and you won't see that. You might see that with Clinton, but you won't see that with Kennedy. You might see that with. So there's a definite sort of difference with American presidents, and here he's shown as a parody. So the makeup that they've used is definitely sort of slightly more than it but needs to be. Here he's not a parody of 
a villain. No, no, he's not a villain. And that's the but distinction he's very, I was... he's very rarely depicted as a, an out-and-out villain. No, but he's generally depicted as somebody... He's, de- he's depicted as somebody who's who's smart but falls on his own sword. Or somebody that's easily manipulatable. The, the Frost and Nixon film. I, haven't, I still haven't seen it yet. No, it's is, a good he, film. is he depicted as a parody there? And that's slightly that's slightly different because it's more. It's set after it. Yeah, and and also the person making it is famous for for realistic depictions. Right. But I'm thinking there's a film called Dick, which is a teen comedy yeah. with Nixon in it, and he's very much a parody there. Or Anthony Hopkins. That the only time he's absolutely not a parody is all the president's men, and you only see him on sort of TV screens looming over Woodward and Bernstein. But I'll stop there. He's always <laughs> seen as a sort of proto Bush, but actually, so it's just the phrase is a bit funny. Proto Bush. Well, he is he's sort of a Bush type character. Thirty years earlier, or whatever it is, is not quite, not quite what Bush would become. But it, the way it's seen almost, in the way I sort of perceive it, is that it was people like Nixon who allowed people like Bush later to happen. Mm. But I, but then if you look at what Nixon did, I mean, I, I've also got the impression with Nixon that actually most of the things he did weren't necessarily bad. He wasn't a warmonger. He, didn't he just happened to be president at the wrong time he didn't, and didn't know how to get out of it. He didn't start the Vietnam War. No. He, he, was a good, he was a good president in general, but he, was also, he also couldn't deal, with, he couldn't deal with the public side of being a president. He wasn't comfortable in public. He was very awkward. Mm. He, was and he was also this. really paranoid. So he, and yeah. his paranoia led to him bugging his opponents and then ultimately bugging himself. And that's, <laughs> that's how he was brought down because well, he, bugged, joke he bugged himself talking about bugging his opponents. <laughs> and and that's that's the worst uh, thing. You must have seen all the president's men. No, well, yes. I, no, I didn't, yes. And that's the joke There's about him, joke him, in him here, recording yeah. the, the telephone conversation. The doctor says to him at the end, make sure you record everything, Dickie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's what it was about. But as a, but as a president, he was, you know, stable and... I mean, there were bad things, and domestically he wasn't great. But he he started the the end of the Cold War briefly until Reagan came along. So he it was detente with the Soviets. He opened up China. So yeah, but he uh, he's treated as a because this is obviously earlier in his presidency than a lot of these things. Here he's treated as a bit of a comedy foil. Yeah, yeah. is that? disrespectful to his legacy because you know his legacy is oh my god it's this hitler type character from american politics almost is it disrespectful to show nixon as somebody who's actually a, <coughs> quite an affable good guy who cares <laughs> seriously yeah but there were I, lots I of complaints care. about the depiction of nixon in this because the, they the, should the, have been shown as a villain as that's, yeah was... that's because they haven't got as far as hitler where he's also i mean that's well, more yeah. of a problem but what can you do i mean hitler, well, I, I think it's but i think it's not you knock him out stick him in a cupboard that's i think the, de- hitler. the depiction of nixon is perfectly in tune with how i would expect how other people have depicted nixon He's very, he's never he's very rarely depicted as this kind of shadowy malevolent character because he's too awkward to be that. It's his yeah. awkwardness, his his lack of connection with people, 
that's that's what so you can see the the running joke when he's coming out of things to hail to the chief and giving a sort of a, a slightly stilted speech yeah. that he's he's pre-prepared. Yeah. That's the joke with Nixon. That's always the joke with Nixon. He's always sort of delivering something somebody else has written <laughs> and feeling awkward about it when all he wants is to be on his own making policy up. Right. Like Gordon Brown. Yeah, like Gordon Brown. In fact, Gordon Brown is very Nixonian in that mm. sense. And he was, he was a good... He was a reasonable prime minister. He just didn't connect with the public. So and he appeared Nixon, at the wrong Nixonian, time. Yeah, Nixonian is a, a real word, isn't it? He means Nixon-esque. Nixon-esque. No, I mean Nixonian. Is it what about Brown? Is it Brown-esque or? It's Brownonian. Brownonian. Brownian. 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 Brownish. Right. Oh, so it's Nixony. 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 Right. All right. The other question is the way they deal with the silence. This is, or this was perceived as. Almost literally, the doctor not just condoning, but facilitating genocide. Having watched it again today, I was looking out for that. And actually, the way it's played is the doctor says to the silence, right, now they've been told to shoot you, so get out of here before they do. Yeah, yeah, that's how it's played. That's how I read it. Mm. Um, yeah. There is obviously that scene with River where she shoots all those silence around the TARDIS, but then that's one of those, well, here they are, but they're she not does, going anywhere. She does You've that while he's it. inside the TARDIS. And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, don't tell him I've done that, yeah. or he won't be happy about that, I think she says. Oh, no, because he predicts she won't get all of them, and she does. Oh, OK. I thought it was just that she he wouldn't like the fact that he, she just... I, I know, because he tells her to, doesn't he? He says, you shoot at least three of these, and she says seven. He says, seven, really? She says, yeah, eight, yeah. maybe. But yeah. I think that's just banter to scare them a little bit. And then when he goes into the TARDIS, she actually does take them all out. Oh, maybe. He probably turns a blind eye, actually. Turn a scanner. And they've also been slightly set up as pest. Like the way they're filmed, the way they're on the ceiling. They're set up as sort of an infestation. Yeah, in the caverns and in the holes. Well, the first time we meet one in the toilet with Amy, first time we actually meet one, as opposed to the first time we see one, I suppose. He kills that woman for no other reason than that she's there. Mm. Joy. Yeah. So it it's was joy. So it's not like they don't kill yeah. in was... cold blood for no good reason. Oh, was that the point of that? That they just it just killed joy for this for joy. I think it's because the silence was there waiting for Amy. Yeah. And because Joy was there and she came in and there was an interaction, I think that messed up. The silence's idea of how that was going to play out. Okay, there's always almost a sense because he said her name was Joy that it's the fact that he knows, yeah, and the fact that he's clearly it's almost like everybody's got a guardian silence like that hangs around them, and at some point, you know, <laughs> that's really kills spooky. Them. Yeah, I know, but that's what it's demonstrated. It's saying I know, I know every, I know everything yeah. about this that's this right. woman because I'm always there with her. And that's one of your short fan fiction stories, isn't it? Oh, yeah. The Guardian Silence. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything else anybody wants to bring up about this? I sp- I, the other things we should talk about are things that we can keep for when we get to Good Man Goes to War, Let's Kill Hitler, Wedding of River Song. I mean, I thought it was. I thought it was a lot fresher. I thought it looked different. The way it was filmed was different. It was more filmic. I and liked. Feel- I thought. Going to um, that the beginning of that second episode, where they sort of hop between. I mean, yeah. it's easily done, and most of it was in Cardiff. If but you look it still at, felt like it was sort of. If you look at Russell T. Davis's seasons, and if you look at Stephen Moffat's first, 
they all look of their time. Mm. This looked like it was made yesterday. Yeah, mm. it's, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah, it does. That's yeah. exactly. I mean, you, you and actually, nail the, on the head straight away. Matt, the connection between it's very, very different. Because I'm rewatching. I got the um the the latest series of Twin Peaks on DVD, which Lynch made from beginning to end, eighteen episodes. And his first episode, so the original series of Twin Peaks takes place entirely within this small town in northwest US. Called, it's called Twin Peaks. Oh! Uh, and it's set, set <laughs> in landscape. But then the opening scene of, or the opening few scenes of this <laughs> reboot, he goes from Twin Peaks to um, another location in America, to Las Vegas, to New York, and he's hopping around. And that's the feel I got with, with this story. They actually suddenly stop setting it in London and Cardiff and open it out. They still mm. film it in Cardiff, but mm. they sort of open it out. I tell you why as well. Florida and DC. And... There was all the publicity about them going to America, but actually there's maybe five minutes on screen yeah. in each episode, yeah. but that's enough to sell it. It's yeah. Lake Silencia. Was that part of Lake the American? Lake Silencia, yeah. Is that part of the American shoot? Um, yeah. Yeah. But obviously, it's not a real life. Just looks beautiful, doesn't it? That scene. Mm. But that's it. I mean, that first episode, all you've got is a handful of scenes around that lake. Yeah. And then in the second episode, you've got two sequences with Amy and Rory where they're running away. And that's it. That's all you get of America. Mm. But that really sells the rest of the two episodes being set in America. You never really question it. Yeah, you never really question it after that. Mm. What about Canton? I love Canton. Yeah, he's, he's great. Good. He would have he made a good, good, uh, good well, companion. Well, at the end, there's a sign, uh, there's a, a line from the Doctor that almost suggests he'll come back for him, but of course yeah. he never does. See around or something. Yeah, people were expecting that <laughs> to happen. But he is a popular actor. It may be that when Moffat was writing those two episodes before, obviously, he'd written the rest of the series, he was intending to bring him back. Then when they cast who they did. He realised they wouldn't be able to get him back and just had to forget about it. But it's possibly. also the sign, the sign of good characters, like the Carrie Mulligan character. Yeah. Is, is that you want them. You then talk for ages about how, oh, they should have kept her on as a companion. Mm. But then maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should just always want her to come back as a companion. And those are the good. Those are, you know you've nailed a guest character. And then you don't get Captain Jack, oh. where the more that Captain Jack appears, the less you like him. Yeah. Potentially. Shall we do some scores then? I've already had a 10 from Lee. Still a 10 from me. Simon? I mean, unless there is anything else anybody else wants to bring up. I did, I, no, all I was going to say was that it did... Um, it's not very well written, saying it was, it was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Saying how dense it was. Everything seems quite random. All those elements like the spacesuit and all those sort of things. And it does remind me, of, I mentioned earlier before we were recording, that I watched the first episode of the second series of Dirt Gently, and the whole point of that is everything seems very random, all these random elements that are actually yeah. interconnected. Hmm. But the difference that... being, in that series, they are quite randomly connected. You know, there is, it is all of it. It's ahead of its time, because you watch television now, and things like Westworld, and even Star Trek Discovery, yeah. mm. things are disconnected, because the people making it know that you're going to binge watch at some point yeah they work backwards all the time don't they yeah they, they work yeah, yeah. these things fit yeah. together and, then and even Battlestar I mean, them out. So the, and Twin Peaks these things are television's made now in a slightly different way and mm. this is sort of like in the early stages of that it stopped being like Buffy where you have seasons monster of the week seasons of yeah. monster yeah. of the week but a yeah. story arc across the, a linear story arc 
it's actually you know something more complicated than that mm. so what score which oh. <laughs> I was going to say just one last point which makes this all the more amazing because it's one writer whereas the Westworld the and all that it's a whole team writing. of writers well, yeah. smoothing every single error out extending stuff expanding stuff throwing ideas in and going oh yeah man we'll have that we'll have that and this is written by Stephen well Moffat, arguably that, either, that kind of makes things so either you get a really tightly controlled writer's room like you would have with Westworld with Jonathan Nolan controlling yeah. it Seamless or writer. you get one writer who's mapped it all out in advance so I don't I'm not amazed at I'm never amazed at Stephen Moffat's skill in keeping track of things because that's the writer's job I'm that's amazed like a novelist, that he writes something a novelist's in, job it's, I'm I'm amazed that he writes stuff like this in the time that he does like, yeah that yeah. I find Incredible. I mean, well, yeah, I couldn't do it, mm. but I'm not. I don't. I don't sit here thinking, how does Stephen Moffat keep keep all the balls in the air? Because mm. that's kind of maybe a good scriptwriter's job. Maybe I'm saying maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong. The only criticism then I could throw at it from the writing side is it. It is maybe like a novel on mm. screen. You know, when we had the big, uh, not big finish, the Virgin Adventures. They would do that sort of thing. They'd put loads of disparate elements at the beginning of the book and they'd knit them at the end. Yeah. Right? So it's pretty much the same as what Stephen Moffat's doing. And it actually is like a book. It's very dense in places. And there are one line here, one line there, one line over there, which you have to you have to get. Because if, mm. if you suddenly cough or blink or go out and get a cup of tea and come back, you've missed something really important for the next three or four episodes or whatever. So it, it is like that. So maybe there should have been more show and not so much tell there is quite a lot of that going on I think there always is Stephen Moffat though yeah but that's people make us still a plain but it ain't like the classic series wasn't you know 22 minutes of people standing around in rooms talking to each other and then 30 seconds of Yeti busting through a door <laughs> this is kind of Doctor Who might feign to be an action adventure series but really it's lots of talking with a bit of action adventure that's because the original series is theatrical this is filming yeah, That's but it's still been the same. You look yeah. at... I The example I always give is The Runaway Bride, where 40 minutes... Well, 35 minutes into the episode, the Doctor and um, Donna walk into the room where the Ragnos is, and that's where they stay for the next 20 minutes. There is a 20-minute scene yeah. as the climax of that story. Too long. Christmas Invasion's the same. Tenant wakes up 35, 36 minutes into the episode and then spends 15 minutes talking to the Sycorax. Mm. that's just what Doctor Who is tell you what else if they called Amy Anne that bathroom scene it would have been Anne Joy the Silence wow (laughs) (laughs) oh and Amy was less annoying as well yeah she's great she's great I don't think there's another character in Doctor Who that's had the same journey that works so well you may not like her I I didn't didn't like her originally but I think that's because I felt I think I've said it many times before in that first opening 11th hour episode mm. that the actors were too chummy. They'd hung around enough times in rehearsal and you could tell it wasn't like mm, this is the first time they've met walking up the hill. They know each other and it didn't feel right. So that's what annoyed me. She was a bit too cocksure. Mm. That was the character, not the actress. But, but looking back at this now and looking back at this season especially, she is nailing this. It does actually right? relate back to what Joe was saying about Luke's character in Star Wars. You know, you, you say, well, he shouldn't be like this, he should be like that. But actually, Amy is doing exactly what 
somebody who'd been through her experiences would be like. Yeah. Plus, Stephen Moffat yeah. writes 1940s screwball comedies. Everything he does is a 1940s screwball comedy as sci-fi or as farce or as something else. But everything he does it is 1940s screwball comedies. And that's what her character in The Eleventh Hour is. She's got the fizz that Cary Grant and Lauren Bacall have got or something like that. That's what's going on there. Yeah, but she hasn't... I mean, you know... It was there from the outset. It annoyed me because I thought, oh, it doesn't, you know, it's jumped straight into it. But actually, you know, looking at her trajectory, and especially with the baby thing, you know, when we get there, you see, you can see that kind of craziness that's starting to embed in her about hanging around with the doctor for so long. It is, it's a massively crazy university he occupies and she occupies now. And she has been through quite a lot of trauma and she's acting it really, really well. I didn't like the cliffhanger. I didn't like the slow motion cliffhanger. I thought that was a bit strange, weirdly done. When she shoots the, the girl in the spacesuit. That feels and like... And it's done in slow motion and the doctor like goes, almost, no! It almost feels like they were meant to do a shot and they forgot. And it's like, oh my God, yeah. we need to eat this out. And but but she shoots them and then, <laughs> and then you get a very slow, like... Actually, that doesn't, but that doesn't pay off in any way, does it? Because you know, after which she's apologized. Next episode, she's apologizing to the girl, saying, "Sorry, I tried to shoot you. Thank mm-hmm. God, I missed." Yeah, I didn't mind. Which, I didn't mind the payoff. It was just the way that that whole scene. Yeah, but it is shot, one of. But the reason why that happens is because it's the idea is that she pulls the trigger as she realizes it's a child. And it, yeah, and the idea yeah. is that it's one of those time standstill moments when you just think to yourself, "Oh, oh my no. god, Surely what if I? What if she hadn't just opened it a fraction of a second earlier, or mm. I'd waited another fraction of a second yeah. to pull the trigger?" It's yeah. a time standstill yeah. moment. That's why yeah. it slows it's down. It's about where yeah. you are at at that end of the episode, isn't it? It's not about. Yeah, yeah. I just don't. I don't think it was. I, I think the direction was a bit. Okay. It I didn't come across brilliantly directed. I tell you one thing I noticed. Is a bit yeah. There's the bit when he's in the um, cockpit of the Apollo, and the camera <laughs> pulls back. Yeah, the camera pulls back along the gangplank, and then when it gets to the building, it suddenly goes sideways. And I was looking, and I suddenly noticed that the special effect of the two guys in, because of the way they'd matted it on, as the angle changed, they suddenly turned into little paper figures turning on their side. Oh, oh really? Oh, spoiled forever. <laughs> I mean, it was so tiny, and it was only because it was on Blu-ray. And I yeah, saw, yeah. But I noticed it. I've never seen it before. But it was just so funny to see this little guy, like, turning sideways like a little paper figure. <laughs> <clears throat> Never do, do any of you watch it on Netflix or did you watch a disc version? I watched the Netflix. Oh, right. Netflix. Did you get the little, the little intro that Amy does at the beginning oh, of the yeah. episode? Is that on the? Uh, yeah. Is that only on Netflix? As far as I'm aware, I don't yeah. remember it being. Was on it on the, the actual show. episode? It's not on the British releases. It's American. But thing. was it on the broadcast? No, not in oh, Britain. Okay. In America. Okay. Oh, that's fine. Because yeah. that's what I meant by. The, the sort yeah. of feeling of it being like an Americanized new start. Mm. Oh, because of the thing they put on there pre- in America. Pre- yeah, it was quite well, isn't it? I think. Yeah, I think it does, actually. It, yeah, it didn't did, jar. Yeah. Could do with having that at the beginning of every one. I... No, they do do that at the start of every episode from now to the end of Matt Smith. I Or something like that. Mm. Or does Clara do one in the end? No, no or maybe up to the end of Amy Pond or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah okay, it becomes a standard I'll feature of the American find out podcast. Next podcast because I'm watching it on Netflix. Well, it will be off on Netflix when I'm able to British hmm. screenings. But no, we, no it was never saying, in Britain. No. When Lee, when you were saying about you know you felt you couldn't resist watching more of them, I carried on and I watched it, watched the episodes 
two episodes afterwards as well. Well, they run on in the background. I can completely see how somebody Mate, would just get into the, the series. the curse of the black spot. Why would I leave it running? Are we, <laughs> we'll, we'll find we'll out next that. time. We'll talk about that later. I know. You haven't I'm scored just, it. I'm just, just preempting everybody of my feeling, and hopefully it'll change by next week. Anyway, next time. <laughs> I think on watching, I don't think my score's changed on it from the original watch. I, I think I probably would have given it an 8 out of 10. I think I probably still would. Because I wouldn't give it a 10 because I didn't think it was perfect. And I wouldn't give it a 9 because it isn't one of my favourite episodes. So I'd say it's a solid 8. <laughs> oh, what are you shaking your head? Simon, How was... dare I have a personal choice, Luke? <laughs> dear, oh dear. If you don't have a personal choice, you just always say 8. <laughs> I always say 8. Solid 8. <laughs> it's a good solid, solid 8. eight. That's all right, a good solid eight, perfect ten. <laughs> Oi, wifey, I'm just going upstairs for a good solid eight. <laughs> oh, God. Has it gone past midnight? Oh, it has. No, that'll be a number two. Don't give JR water, whatever you do. Matt. Eight. Is it a good See? solid eight, though, Matt? It's a reasonable eight. It's a reasonable eight. <laughs> a reasonable eight. Eight. Eight on the Bristol stool scale. Stacey. What? <laughs> Do you not Stools? know about the British, the Bristol stool scale? Oh, I thought you were yes, talking I about do. going upstairs for a Lee knows stool. about the Bristol. Obviously, Lee's had problems in this area. Before. No, no, I'm married to an NHS person. Oh, okay. oh, I see. Right. What? What is the, What's the range? Oh, it's one to. It's one on to, viscosity. Or? It's one to seven, I think. What is a Bristol's stool? A Bristol stool scale. <laughs> well, put it this way. Put it this way. When it comes out, no. seven is liquid and one is. Like not very much happening. Brick, yeah. yeah. Mm. I was and Matt. You... <laughs> <laughs> I'd give my score if anybody. Oh, go on then. Oh, really? Okay. Well, what would you have given? I know this is this is one of my absolute all-time favourite Doctor Who's ever. It's a ten. This is in my top ten Doctor okay. Who stories of all time. I just absolutely adore this. Ten, Matt. Is that really, really money? Yeah, no. <laughs> gas. It's like, gas. It's like sweat, sweating out of you. That's what's happening. Oh, sweating out your bristles. Hey, yeah. oh gosh. Back to that strange creature with Luke again. Right, next time we may or may not do Curse of the Fatal Black Pirate. Because <laughs> but last time, when we did Series 5, we did, it, we did a review every other week with something else in between. Hmm. So who knows, we may do something else in between this time. Or oh, we may be back with the Curse of the Fatal Pirate <laughs> next time. What is it? Curse of the Black I know what it is. Okay. Curse of the Black Script. I know. <clears throat> if you I've only seen it once. I'm it. quite looking forward to the ones I've only seen once. <laughs> yeah. It's too easy to wind up. I, I wasn't expecting it to be a Pirates of the Caribbean movie on a Doctor Who budget, and I enjoyed it. And it was. Yeah. I haven't, some of these, I've, or most of these, I've only seen once. So I'm sort of I'm more what are we talking about in now then? Are we, so? are we going no, on? No, we're preempting yeah. what we might no, think I'm about. Go to bed. <laughs> that wasn't the yeah, idea, no, but that's I'm what happened. To, I'm going to put, put to bed my my love of, of real pirates and how nasty they really were and enjoy this pantomime and see what I think of it. So there we go. Why not? Yeah, exactly. I'm going to enjoy it. Good. Sit there and go. Are you a piracy snob? Yeah. Anything to do with the water is a snob, which is why he's an eight on the Bristol stool scale. Bloody pirates. An eight is virtually tidal. That's Lee. (laughs) Tidal. Right, until next time. I was JR. I was Matt. 
I was Simon. I wasn't Simon, I was Lee. I was Matt. And we'll speak again soon. <laughs> do you want to do that again? No. I don't edit, I've told you that. Was that you were saying about? Find a man, find a man, find a man, have me, find a king. Or how about Spider King? I love the way you're holding your hands together like an opera singer. <laughs> Are you trying to get farting noises? What do you mean? Yeah. Like I'm holding my hands together like an <laughs> opera singer. Did that not sound like opera to you? Mm. I had John Williams on the car oh, on the way here. So I've got... Winfrey. Oh. Good speech. The ne- next president. The no. no. Just because she made a speech doesn't make her a president. No, I know. It's The Rock. The Rock's the next president. He was the there. Sorry? He was there, wasn't Johnson. he? I'm sure I saw him in one of the shots. Somebody said online that it was going to be Oprah Winfrey versus a, t- <clears throat> a talk show host. But she's a talk she show host. She is a talk host. show host. Was it her against her? I don't know. She won't win. She'll talk herself out of it. She'll oh, I know. With... The point that we're making, it would be a talk show host versus a uh, reality TV star. <sighs> if it's her versus Trump. <sighs> If every time anybody made a good speech, they were a president, and her speech wasn't—it wasn't, it wasn't presidential at all. Was no, it, it no. wasn't political no. in that kind of way either, was it? Mm. So, I mean, mm. she only said what a load of people were thinking, and obviously, what she said was right, mm. and it was nice to hear it being said in that context. But that doesn't make it a president. It's almost the flip, though, of the whole. Trump thing, isn't it? Of where people are just looking for a change, except it's all gone drastically wrong. It was not the first time, is it? Bush Junior was just riding on the coattails of his father, and it wasn't mm-hmm. about the politics; it was about the person. And we had Reagan in the eighties. <clears throat> Reagan felt harmless to me compared to what came after. Ish. You know, the president's brain was missing. He wasn't. Yeah, but don't forget, Reagan was the Star Wars president. He was the president who yeah. was going to drop nuclear bombs from the, outside the atmosphere. Yes. So it wasn't quite that. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot right. of countries were well, doing that. Well, you know Star what I mean. was to try and destroy nuclear bombs with lasers from the atmosphere. Oh, what, it was uh, yes. defence shield right. rather yeah. than... But I think the Russians were paranoid because if you can do that, then you can drop nuclear bombs from outside yeah, the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 256 nuclear bombs tested in the world. Since mm. 1950. Wow. There you go. This is cheerier matters, is yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're all going to die from radiation poisoning. I knew we were going to talk about, talk about Star Wars, but I didn't know it was that Star Wars. <laughs> it might explain my hair loss. <laughs> Nothing can explain. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look. You've got good hair. What are you talking about? Good hair? Oh, thank you, man. What is this? There What's is stuff on? you can buy. Can just compliment my <laughs> Hang on, wait a minute. There's, there's, they're called wigs. No, there's, there's stuff you can buy which reopens the follicle. Follicles. Oh, my God. What's that? Pincers? But you've got to keep using it all the time. All you need to do, apparently, Donald Trump has had a forehead reduction. <laughs> and it, apparently, it's like 
there's a big bald spot in the middle and he's just grown his hair around it and then he sort of quaffs his hair over the bald spot. So it's all engineered. That's what his daughter said, according to Genetic Wolf engineering in his book. Oh, no. Which may or may Trump's not be had a tr- Trump's had a cranial reduction <laughs> so that instead of his head being on the outside of his follicles, stopping the hair from coming through, now his head is on the inside of the follicles, which means the hair can grow freely again. There you go. <clears throat> <clears throat> taking little tiny bits of brain with it yeah. if you look closely at the end of well, his no. hair they had to take the brain out in order to give him the cranial reduction Ah, it all makes perfect sense 